What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Budgets and Brews podcast with your host, Rich and Tony, where we discuss, chat, and ramble about personal finance, investing, getting out of debt, budgets, business, and beer. In this episode, we interview wealth manager Matt Richter and discuss eight life-changing ideas to set yourself up for financial success in 2021. We talk about building a money bazooka and what the heck that means. And we discuss jacuzzi beer storming. Yes, beer storming. At the end of the episode, join us for Rich and Tony's Beer Review, where we act like beer connoisseurs, but really have no idea what we're talking about. Today on tap is Brewdog Punk IPA. This week's topic is... Eight financial tips for 2021, jacuzzi beer storming, and building a money bazooka. Before we dive into the show, just a quick interview introduction. Matt is currently self-employed working as an independent wealth manager. He oversees investments and real estate portfolios. He also runs a finance blog called Financial Imagineer. And Matt previously worked as a wealth manager for the major Swiss bank. A fun fact, he was once a contestant on the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So without further ado, Matt Richter. Thank you so much for the, the great introduction. I'm very happy to be here today. We are honored that uh, you're able to join us. I think it's going to be a very fun discussion and some very creative topics that we're going to be talking about today. And so we wanted to actually do a little thing. It was called Blog Roulette, and this episode was shifted a couple different ways, um, but we're still going to get to the same the same premise of what we were going to do before. And so we're going to cover the power of planning, as we mentioned, the eight life-changing ideas to set yourself for a financially successful 2021. We're going to go in depth on that. And then we're going to drop in a couple spices here. We got some bonus topics of your gravity-defying money bazooka and the art of jacuzzi beer storming. And so those will just be sort of tossed in there at the end. But one of the things before all of that, I think that a lot of our listeners are probably wondering in the intro that you were a a contestant on the show who wants to be a millionaire. Can you maybe break the ice a little bit and uh, tell us a little bit that? I mean, that seems so cool. And many of us probably have never had that opportunity to do that. That was quite an interesting moment in my life. About 20 years ago, uh, I was annoyed by the Swiss app, the Swiss version of uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So I wrote a complaint letter to them <laughs> saying the, the quality of your candidates is not up to speed because I, I was used to the German quality in Germany. They had a very good show and the Swiss uh, show, nobody made it past like $8,000. So I wrote this complaint letter and then they took me by my word. Two weeks later, they called me back and say, why don't you show us how... <laughs> <laughs> and invited me to the show. Then I was a little bit surprised because I didn't plan to be on that show. But nevertheless, I went there and prepared myself and luckily ended up winning $125,000. And that was what, like two, three questions before the million? That was three questions before the wow. million. And then what was the question that you missed? Of course, yeah, of course. You will never forget something <laughs> like that. <laughs> this was a question about uh, the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Who is the, the chief uh, dirigent there? Like, who is the orchestrator? And I had no idea. Wow. It was, and I was out of jokers and I was happy with 125K. So I say, call it a day. Thank you so much. I, yeah. I even started, when he asked me that, I look at him and I say, this is easy. You made it very easy for me now. And then they thought, wow, he knows it again as i know i don't know it's easy for me to take the money now well cool thanks for sharing that story i thought that was pretty neat so diving into the the power of planning 
eight life-changing ideas to set yourself for a financially successful 2021. Now, this is a blog post that you wrote, and we're going to have this linked in our show notes so listeners could go and they could see the full blog in detail. But I thought that this was imperative to have as 2020 has been a crapshoot for a lot of people out there. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, starting now, looking at 2021, maybe we can better prepare ourselves. And especially if we're looking into our finance, this would be a great sort of recap of that. And so some of these steps are self-explanatory and some are not. And so I want to introduce to, to the listeners and maybe clarify some of those steps. And so the first one that we have here is reimagine your relationship infrastructure. Can you sort of tell us what this first step means? Okay, the the relationship infrastructure goes to the point that people say um, you will become the average of the five people you hang out the most with. Very simply put, try to find people that are like a little bit ahead of you, that are fun, positive, and uh, challenge you to make a better self out of yourself instead of people that are maybe energy dragging, negative, uh, not helping you with uh, what, what you have in mind with making with uh, your life, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Of course, if it's five people, 10 people, or no matter what, it, it's up to you. The point is simple that you, you should find people that are pulling you up and helping you to become who you want to become rather than having people holding you back and uh, just uh, complaining about life. It's maybe the difference between positive and negative people. We have talked about this actually in our very first episode. You're the average of the five people that you hang out with the most. Mm -hmm. And I think this could be a goal for anybody going into 2021 is, like you said, to reimagine what that relationship infrastructure looks like. If you see yourself hanging out with people who are more going to bring you down and really not going in that same direction that you want to be, is now try to reach out to some people who are. And maybe that could be supervisors or peers, or you get into some online networking groups, Facebook groups and LinkedIn, and just try to associate with them and try to hear what they have to offer to you as far as advancement and knowledge. Maybe as well, you can also um, put another angle to that. It's uh, if you are the smartest guy in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. Think of it like you have nothing to learn anymore when, when you always think, oh, where am I, right? So you have to find a room where you are the one asking the questions. That's what helps you to advance in life. Now, step number two is commit yourself to lifelong learning, specifically financial learning. And I think that is one of the, we talked about self-explanatory ones. Go ahead and start learning about your finances, learning about what it's going to take for you to retire or how you could live comfortably or be financially independent. And there are so many different places you can start with that. Our podcast is one, your blog is another one. There are free courses we sort of talked about in our other podcast as well, shows like Coursera. I think Tony, you're doing, is it Udemy? That's correct, yep. Yeah, Udemy is another platform where you can get free information from. And so there's so many places out there, YouTube channels, pick up a book. Yeah, go old school, go with the book, go with the eBooks, start learning something. Yeah, that, that's so true. And you know, like Rich said, there, there's tons of good books out there. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that we should never stop learning, especially when it comes to your finances, you know, never stop learning. And I think even LinkedIn has like e-learning where you can, you know, learn different topics. And if anybody that follows our Facebook page or Twitter, I at least read one article a day, just something new every day to better myself. And then what I try to do is I try to put that information down, what I learned and share that with my audience so I could try to explain it in a different way to help mm-hmm. myself understand it. I'm doing it for myself, but also for somebody else who might come across an article that's interesting. Let me dive a little bit deeper in there. So then number three, 
Number three is set a net worth target. So can you talk about why this is important to us? Okay, in, in life, I think you will focus the most on things that you can measure and that you take care of and look at. And uh, a net worth target uh, is basically you, you tell yourself you want to reach a certain net worth by what time. And this is very specific. It's measurable. It is time bound. And uh, what is net worth? It's basically your, all your assets minus liabilities. You can include cash, investment accounts. Some people, they debate whether real estate should be there or not. I uh, think it should be. Um, it's up to you. Uh, other people put their business ownerships in there. Everything that is an asset you put in there, but maybe don't put your sofa, your TV, your computers, things that are depreciating things you shouldn't put in there. And then you you lesser the, that amount with your uh, liabilities, your debt. And then at the end, that's what you're worth. That's your net worth. Let's say if your net worth is at X and you would like to reach network 2X or, or whatever it is, you put that number down, you write it down, you have a target that, that gives you clarity. And then of course, uh, you try to go towards that target and you see how you make progress. So some people like to do this monthly. I, I don't advise to make it a daily habit to, to recalculate. It will drive you nuts if you follow yeah. the markets too close. So <laughs> take a little step back there. But ultimately, over the, the mid, mid to long term, if, if you track it, you should get there if, if you see how things work with each other and uh, interact with each other. I couldn't agree more with that, especially when you, when you for me, at least personally, when I, I'm tracking my net worth, it's exciting for me to see it go up. So that's like a huge motivator for me. Anytime I see my net worth go up, you know, it makes me want to save more. It makes me want to add more to my 401k, my, you know, my mm. retirement accounts, just to keep seeing that number climb. It gives you kind of that like sense of accomplishment. And so I think yeah. it's something, whatever it is, is, is you have it. So it's a goal that you can work towards. And I think that's the biggest yes. message yes. there. I, I think it's powerful too, you know, just thinking like, okay, if you have the mindset, like I want to focus on increasing my net worth to X amount, right? So I'm at X, I want to get to 2X. You know, mm -hmm. that might just be the motivation you need to go over your budget, right. figure out where you can cut Correct. some spending, you know, figure out, you know, if you're setting this goal and you're motivated and determined to reach it, you know, that might be all you need to, to get there, you know, just review your finances, figure out where you can save more and where you can invest more, maybe, maybe change your investment strategy, whatever it is that works for you. But, you know, just having that motivation can really sometimes set things in motion. Number four we have is activate your assets. So what does that mean? And then how does one go about doing that? That's when you calculate your net worth. Usually you look through what you have. You would be surprised how many people maybe figure out when you do this Excel spreadsheet. Uh, in my way, it was like I put up all the, the assets and then I see what are they doing for me. Mm -hmm. Think of money maybe as your soldiers that you sent to fight and work for you and you see how hard they work in a in a very uh, like special way to look at it but activating means you may have some assets lying around and not doing anything for you some people they have huge piles of cash uh, some people have maybe some vintage stuff some art may, not saying anything could be bad right people have personal reasons for holding it but there could be some assets uh, that you sit on that don't do anything for you if that is the case you can reconsider why why you should keep it that way or should you should this be something you can consider to change 
I do that all the time. I walk around the house and I'm looking at different things. I'll look at my clothes. I'll look at things on the shelf and say, have I used this in the past X amount of years? Does this have value? Will I be using this in the future? And if the answer is really no, and I haven't really touched it, maybe go ahead and go to, I know, like a Plato's Closet. They take in clothes. Or you can have a yard sale, post it on eBay or Craigslist or something like that. So you can sell it, get that money, and then throw that money towards if, if you're trying to smash your debt, you could throw it towards there. And if not, you could put that into like an investment. And it's not going to make maybe a huge difference depending on what that item is, but small things add up. And then those small little victories will eventually, you know, they'll start greasing those wheels to activate those um, assets, I think, even more. Another thing maybe is also people, sometimes they are very house rich. They have a too big house. They have maybe an extra room. People can consider doing Airbnb or renting it out. So it could also be that uh, inactive assets are idle. Doesn't mean it's like you sell it, but you keep it and uh, rent it to someone. Uh, the other thing could be you have maybe two parking lots, but just one car. So you, you might have an idle parking lot that you can rent out. So there might be tremendous opportunities if you just look through what you have and what it's doing for you. Yeah, it seems like this entire step is really just identifying what your assets are, what could potentially make you some money and help your net worth, and then making sure it's working for you. Correct. If you got an old camera laying around, maybe become a photographer. Start taking pictures, yeah. right? Get a little side business going. Side hustles, we covered yeah. that before. Learn for free on YouTube, the places we were just telling you. Surround yourself with other people who like to take pictures and know what they're talking about. And now you're making a couple extra bucks on the weekends. Number five, increase your earnings. Speaking of, yeah. so this seems straightforward. But I would say also difficult at the same time. So how does someone just, just do that? Is it just applying for a different job? Okay, so uh, in that part of the post, I, I use uh, Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant. Um, for the people who haven't uh, seen that before, it basically splits up your earning abilities into four quadrants. One is you're the employee. The employee sells time. Most people start with that. The second quadrant is self-employed. You still sell your time, but you get a little bit more for it because you don't share it with your organization. It's your self-employed. The third quadrant is a B. It stands for business. So you build a business and you actually manage people. So you have to be good in people management and then the business works for you. The better you build up that system, the, the easier it will be to leverage. So that option allows you leverage because you're not just selling your time, you're, you're working on that system. And the last one, it's maybe the most passive of them all, it's investing. That's uh, when, you, when you buy funds or, or shares and you put your money to work for you. How to actually increase it? The beauty of it is you don't have to focus just on one of them. You can do two, three, or even four. You can go in all of them simultaneously. Just do it maybe step by step. Uh, venture out and uh, learn to see whether you can unlock some income from another cash flow quadrant. You, you can improve your skills. You can go for a promotion. If you have valuable skills that you can market, the internet is so vast, you can try to market yourself over the internet uh, for consultancy or for whatever you're, that is that you're good at. If you want to start a business, of course, right, that's uh, more difficult to get started with, but that's also something you can consider depending where you are. And then the, the I quadrant, anyone who can save some money uh, regularly, can put it to work for themselves. That's also helping you to increase your income. So just thinking about what other ways someone can do that. And those are four different strategies, four different areas that you could play around with to look in there to see what can I be doing in each one of those quadrants. And as you mentioned yeah. before, most people are in just the employee quadrant 
where we're just sitting mm-hmm. there and we're, we're, we're selling our time. So how else can we get involved to increase that mm-hmm. net worth? And I, you know, I think if you're like an average Joe out there and you, and you don't think you can branch out to these different quadrants, you know, you know, maybe, maybe reconsider, you know, if you, if you have a job, right, you're at least in the first quadrant there, you're selling your time as an employee to make some money. So if you have extra time, maybe consider picking up a side hustle. As Matt mentioned, you know, if you've been working at your job for a while, maybe you just go to your manager and ask for a raise. You know, there's no harm in asking for more money as long as you're not doing it constantly all the time. And then the other thing is, you know, we're big on starting investing at a young age. Maybe listen to some podcasts, do some research, figure out what, if you have a little bit of extra cash, how you can invest that and make that money work for you. And I would say, if you're going to go ask for a raise, make sure you have something to back that up too. Like show, like I I have been working extra. And even before that, you could plan that out. You could plan, I'm going to ask for a raise in two months, but for these next two months, I'm going to make sure I start documenting everything, how I'm helping and advancing the company. And that way, when I have the discussion, I can show numbers and show my productivity with that extra fuel for that fire. So now number six, multiply your streams of passive income. But can you uh, give a, provide a couple of examples of uh, multiple income streams? Yeah, so I, I recently wrote one blog post about multiple income streams. You, you see the first waterfall is like your, your salary. The second water flow uh, would be maybe your spouse's salary. And then on the third picture, there will be the number three water flow coming in. That might be your first side hustle or something. When you think of uh, average Joe, uh, maybe everyone who commutes to work you drive your car from A to C. And uh, uh, friends of mine, they started to market this ride uh, on, a, on a website, on an app. And sure enough, there were people interested to share the ride, right? And then you, ha- you do something that you do anyways. You drive to work, but you can pick up people on the way. And these people maybe don't have a car or don't want to ha- use their own car. They might maybe find it cheaper if somebody else drives. And then you actually multiply the income by selling your time doing something that you anyhow have to do, driving to work, and you make, you monetize your time. But uh, of course, it's uh, much more than that. So it goes back to the quadrant. You can invest, you can uh, get dividend income, um, side hustle income. Just think a little bit, where can you do something? Um, Where are you good at? Where can you put your skills and your assets to work for you that there comes an additional uh, revenue stream out of it for you? And then you do it one by one. You you see where you have some uh, leverage on it to, to make it happen. And when it's stable enough, you can look if there's the next one or not. And you have a great one. You own a parking lot. I was oh, thinking yeah. about that. that. That is like one of the top notch ideas. I feel like you don't do anything. People are coming in, parking, paying you monthly. It's not that high maintenance, I would assume. It's it's very low maintenance. Uh, a parking lot doesn't, you don't have to fix the toilets. You don't have to look after the kitchen. Right. Yeah. And nobody will complain about the, the white line on the side of the parking lot to redo that one. It's, it's simple. That comes down to really what it, you know how do you create passive income you know maybe um an investment like that where you're making a purchase of something that's low maintenance that will generate an income stream for you i like the example you made with your friend who uh decided to start kind of doing like a ride sharing on the way to work i can see that being passive income because you know he's already driving to work every day and now he's mm-hmm. finding a way to monetize off that and maybe lower the expense of, of him having a car and helping out other people in the process and if you listen to our episode i think it's 14 but uh, it's 22 different passive income ideas and so we list a bunch of them out there and it really depends on the person is which one do you resonate more with which one can you sometimes you do have to buy into a passive income like we were talking about the parking lot i mean realistically you're talking about the car ride too. You have to have the car before you start right. doing that. So some things there is a monetary value of 
can I afford this to then start generating that passive income? But I mean, the beauty of it is there's just so much out there. So you just pick whatever resonates with you. Right. We're moving on to number seven. And here's another self-explanatory one, but reduce your expenses. And this is something that we have been hammering on, I think almost like every podcast episode, but just talking about ways that you can reduce those expenses, even if it's the small things in your budget over the time of a year, five years, in 10 years, even if you were able to shave off a couple of dollars here, a couple there, it adds up and it adds up. And then when you start thinking about investing and compounding interest, then it, it grows and it keeps on growing. I'm going to sort of move right past there unless there's anything specific uh, that you wanted to share about the number seven. Maybe, maybe one little thing like Warren Buffett, he has a very specific way to look at buying something. So he usually sees it and he sees the price in today's dollars. But I think what he does sometimes, he, he will think of it what would that be in uh, like 50 years from now? Of course, he's now 90 years old, mm -hmm. but he will think ahead, like what, how much future net worth do I give up to buy this one thing? And then based on that, very often the answer is you don't need it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Number eight, pay yourself first. Automate your investments. What do you mean by pay yourself first? That's usually uh, when you get your salary or your uh, check, people in average probably just uh, start to use it to, to buy things they want, to, to pay things they have to pay. But very often they forget to pay themselves. Pay yourself first means you pay your investment account first. You put this side, this, a, a certain chunk of money. It's like you, you write a an invoice to yourself and say, this is the first invoice I'm gonna pay every month and be it 200, $300, whatever amount that is, just do it uh, before you pay anything else. And then you have to live with the rest. It's actually a, a passive way for making a budget instead of just using your money. And uh, that's why a lot of people end up with no money or towards the end of the month. At the end of the money, there's still some month left instead of the other way around. If you pay yourself first, that one's been taken care of. So you don't have to think of it anymore. It's just like a, a way of tricking yourself. And then by yeah. automating that payment for you, and we talked about this too, but it's all, always going straight to your account. That's where you're going to be keeping it. And you don't have to worry about every single month, I have to pull money out now and put it here. It's like you have a system created from it's coming straight to that checking account and it goes to shoot off into a different account. Yeah, I, I love stuff like that. You know, when I, when I get paid, you know, I'm on a, every two weeks, I get a paycheck. I love setting it up to automate into my investment accounts or my retirement accounts. If I don't see the money coming into my actual checking and I'm not able to spend it, then that that's all the better. I know it's going to my savings. I know it's going to an investment account. It, it's going to pay off to me in the future. And we also talked about this a little bit when we uh, had Jerry Bourne, aka Ed Mills, on our podcast, Rich. Do you remember? Yep. He was all about reducing his taxable income to as close to zero as he could by taking uh, advantage of all these different tax benefit accounts and, and things like that, where you would essentially transfer all of your money out from your paychecks into different accounts. That way your taxable income gets closer to zero. That is our eight. To recap, we have reimagine your relationship infrastructure, commit yourself to lifelong financial learning, set a net worth target, activate your assets, increase your earnings, multiply your streams of passive income, reduce your expenses, and pay yourself first. Once again, that full blog article in detail will be uh, posted in the show notes. Website for that is, is it Financial Imagineer? Financial-imagineer.com. Perfect. 
Tony, if you want to take this one over, I know this is one of the ones that you were attracted to and a was. interesting, awesome <laughs> sounding name. And what the heck is it? Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to jump into our little bonus blog post yes. here that we, we picked out and we don't want to spend too much time in these, but we will have them linked in the description. So if you want to check these out and you want to learn more about these, feel free to do so. But I was looking through the uh, financial Imagineer blog post and I saw, I came across this one. It's called your gravity defying money bazooka. When I read that, I was like, okay, I have to, I have to open up this blog. I have to read this. I have to figure out what the heck this is talking about. And it was really cool. I had to read it a couple of times and it's very well written, but it's kind of a advanced, maybe a little bit more of an advancement uh, investment strategy. But essentially, Matt, you were talking about uh, the money multiplier. So how hmm. money gets introduced into the economy, uh, how it gets introduced into banks, how they lend it out and how that, how that yeah. money multiplies. Can you explain on that just a little bit? Basically what the Fed is doing, central banks across the world, they define the reserve ratio in the financial system. So let's assume the reserve ratio is 10%. That would mean if you are the bank and the central bank gives you $100, you have to keep $10 back and you can actually put $90 back as a credit to someone. And then that someone or someone else will bring the $90 back. And again, you have to keep 10% and so on. And you multiply that. At the end, actually, your money that is in the system will 10x. So the $100 bill will become $1,000 in the economy. And that's how uh, central banks and the money orchestrators, so to say, can steer liquidity in our economic system by putting up this uh, reserve ratio or putting it down. China is using that as a tool besides interest rates to, to steer liquidity in the system. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting when I, when I read that. And in, in your post, you, you put, uh, we can generalize that the money multiplier of an economy equals the money issued times 10 divided by the withholding rate, which is that whatever that 10% right. we used as an example. And then I thought that was a really cool concept. It's not something I was really fully aware of on how that worked. And then to part two of the money bazooka is actually building credit to charge your money bazooka. So working on, mm -hmm. working on um, you, you use the example, what's the difference between a single human being and big corporations? Well, the big corporations have heaps of credit and that's why they have so much power. So as an individual person, that's something, if you want to charge your money bazooka, you should work on building your credit. And then at that point, you can actually, um, you talked about, which is level two of this, is getting standby line of credit on your investment accounts. Can you just talk about like how to do that and what that is? So first and foremost, uh, this is something you should only do if you feel more comfortable. That's not something for everyone. So mm -hmm. don't burn yourself. Don't put too much on the into the bank. You could lose the things that you pledge to the bank if you take out too much credit. And you should also use it if you want to use it for something that will help you to grow your net worth. But what you do actually is you, let's say you have $100,000 at the bank. You go to the bank and ask them if it's, let's say, in an ETF, whether or not they offer a credit line on these holdings. If it's a million, maybe the, the chance is even higher. And maybe they will tell you you have a haircut which is the same thing like the reserve ratio, just for you as a, a private person instead of an economy. By doing that, you will get the standby line of credit, which you may or may not use, you, but you have that option. Most banks uh, I work with, they offer the standby solution for free. Setting it up doesn't mean you have to use it, but once in a while, there might be an opportunity coming along and then you might be very happy if you have that standby line of credit because you wouldn't have to sell your assets. 
So I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, he likes to go to houses that are on auction, like for sale and foreclosure sales. Sure. And unfortunately, these happen, right? And if you are there and you bid along with others, if you have this standby line of credit, you will be the guy who can tell very, very comfortably, I pay in cash, I pay now. By having this standby line of credit, you can pay cash and maybe even get a discount on, on your object that you want to purchase. So let's say the object goes for 200000 you, you just say, I pay cash, can I get a discount? And then later on, you can actually take whatever you acquired and go from bank to bank trying to get a mortgage on that. First, you, you borrow money from your orig original bank against your ETF holdings. You yep. buy the object, you get the house title, you bring the house title, shop around for a mortgage. Maybe the object is worth $250,000, but because it was a foreclosure, it, it was cheaper. You get it for one hundred eighty. You borrowed 180 and now maybe the, the banks want your business because you have very good credit. You bought it in cash. So there's no outstanding debt for that. When you go to these banks, maybe they will say this house has a worth of $250,000. It might mm -hmm. be higher than what you bought it. And then they say, sorry, sir, I can only give you 80% credit line, which is still more than the 180 you paid. So basically you can get a 200,000 mortgage on this object and pay back your 180,000 uh, outstanding line, you have 20,000 cash extra plus your house that you can rent out. That is just it's sounds amazing but... to me. Yeah, it was very simplified. And if anyone's confused about that, make sure you go to uh, the Financial Imagineer website and view this blog post because I had to read it a couple times myself. But essentially, you know, if you have that uh, ETF investment or a brokerage account, instead of selling your, your stocks mm -hmm. and um, needing to take, like, to have liquid cash. You can leverage that at your bank, maybe get one of those lines of credits, and you can use that to build on your asset. And then just take that a step further, as Matt was saying, you know, if you can find, essentially take the title of the mortgage or the property, whatever you purchase, and take leverage that again at the bank, you could pay back that line of credit, and essentially you're just building your asset column. And that's then what I call you, you recharge your money bazooka, because yes. you, you take the risk of the, the ETF pledge, and you actually collateralize the house instead of your other assets. You yeah, have to juggle the risk. Don't overdo it. Mm -hmm. The danger is that people overdo it, over leverage, and then that, that might be where the trouble usually starts. I don't think I've ever heard of something like this, which is perfect to segue into, Matt, maybe you thought about this because you were uh, beer, beer storming. And so the next <laughs> bonus article that we have for you, the art of jacuzzi beer storming. I saw this and I was fascinated with it. I just thought it was so cool as a way to pretty much share ideas and, and network and just start, you know, start talking and let the beers mm -hmm. flow in. So if you want to take that over. Okay, so maybe after I looked back at some periods in my life, I figured the most creative points in my life were when I was bored. But maybe the, the better word is idle, when you have nothing else around you. And when we went to Singapore in our condo, there is a, a jacuzzi and Singapore is like 30 degrees Celsius during daytime. It's quite warm. Mm -hmm. And there's this jacuzzi with 40 degrees Celsius warm water. <laughs> So <laughs> I thought first, who will enjoy that? Who will go there? And pretty sure like two days later, I was addicted. I, I went in there and it was super relaxing. So whoever who has a jacuzzi at home or a hot tub, it, it's so nice. And I figured there in this condo, there were a lot of people coming together and I quickly made friends uh, while relaxing. And because it was in the evening, I brought a beer with me. So the beer kind of helped with uh, creative juices flowing doing yeah. nothing, relaxing and sweating, uh, opened up my mind to this idleness I just described. And then I think I had a lot of very, very good ideas. And uh, when other people are there with you, 
I think it gets even more creative. And the jacuzzi beer storming, interestingly enough, I, I figured that the, there are people who use that quite professionally. So there is a Chris Saka. He's a Silicon Valley early stage investor. He actually, instead of going to uh, have a suit and go to attend meetings in, in the Silicon Valley in the beginning. He was an investor in Twitter, Uber, Instagram, and so on. Mm. He actually bought like a cottage very close to Lake Tahoe. He got himself a jacuzzi there, hot tub, and then he invited people over and uh, he even tested them, like how long they can last in the hot water. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the, the greatest deals he ever made were made in the jacuzzi. I think a very different way uh, than meeting in a meeting room. You right. get to know the people better. And if you add beer, people are themselves, they are relaxed. I think it's a breaking the ice again and you get to know each other better. I, I, I like this a lot. I think it takes away a lot of the anxiety or the, the standard business practice where, you know, I'm going into a meeting, uh, I'm nervous. I hope my presentation goes well. It's a non-standard way to meet, network, ch share ideas with people. Mm -hmm. And it's got the coolest name, you know, the art of jacuzzi beer storming. Like th that's really neat. Yeah. I like that a lot. All right. Well, that wraps up our content and our quick blog bonus sessions. So Matt, is there anything else that you want to add? Maybe just if you enjoyed that uh, talk and the ideas, feel free to check out financial-imagineer.com. Consider following on Facebook or on Twitter. Recently, I even have my newsletter subscription. So if you if you hook up there, you don't miss anything that I will publish in the future. Also feel free to, to reach out and write me a, an email. It's uh, matt at financial-imagineer.com. And thanks a lot for being on the show. And, and we're privileged that you're able to stick around for our Rich and Tony's Beer Review. And any of you can do the same. If you're interested in joining us for a beer review, let us know. We're happy to have you on the show. So we're gonna splash right into Rich and Tony's Beer Review. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter and find the link to our Budgets and Brews website where our beer reviews will be available. Also, on our Facebook page, we give away Budgets and Brews apparel every month, so don't miss a chance to win some free gear. And once again, uh, these reviews mean nothing since we don't know what we're doing. So use our lack of knowledge for your entertainment. All right, let's jump into it. So for this week's beer, we'll be reviewing the Brewdog Punk IPA. And remember, we use a scale of 1 to 100, 1 being the worst beer we've ever tasted, and 100 being the best. And we got a couple different, I have a, I have a can, Matt has a bottle, and Tony has a can, and it, it looks sort of cool. I like, a their, I like the brew dog logo. It's like a goofy looking dog with his head pointed up, but it's really unique. And it's the kind of like on a, a shield of armor. It, look, it looks pretty sweet. Nice little shiny blue and, and gray can, almost like an industrial feel. It's yeah. a 5.6% uh, alcohol, born in Scotland. And it's a uh, modern British style IPA. So the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna go ahead and go with the pour and head retention. So we'll go ahead and crack these open. And this is gonna be out of 15. What we always say is, you know, we go hit that 45 degree angle and then we'll go ahead and let that glass tip back up. 45, 45, once you get halfway, then yeah. you let the beer flow. This is nice. Oh, Rich, congrats, you're getting better at this. I'm, I'm getting better. Usually I don't get any pours and I'm, oh, look at, everyone has a good pour. Yeah, Everyone yeah. has a, a decent <laughs> pour. So I'm gonna say, I'll, I'll start it off. I, this was one of the best pours I've ever had. And I don't know if that's just because I just have not had luck with these, but <laughs> this was about an inch and a half of head retention and it's, it's perfect, slowly going down. I'm gonna go 14 on my pour. All right, 
Uh, the four for me was good as well, like about an inch and a half, maybe two inches ahead, maybe a little bit too much, but it looks like it's, it's settling a little bit. Uh, the four itself is very smooth, it looks good. I'll give it a 13 out of 15. I have uh, a little bit less bubbles than last time, but the, the foam is nice, uh, very good texture, um, looks fresh and I can smell it, can't waste to, to get my lips around <laughs> it. <laughs> I think I'm gonna give a 13 as well. And now we're gonna jump into the appearance and color. And this is out of 10. And mine is just, it's stunning. It's stunning. Mine has a bunch of little bubbles just coming right off from the bottom. It is a golden bright yellow, a golden bright yellow. And the head on top of it is just rescinding a little bit. It's probably about at a half inch right now. It just looks perfect. It looks perfect. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to give this a nine. I agree. This looks very good. It's a lighter color beer, so uh, it's transparent, not not cloudy or anything like that. The head has gone down to about an inch. This looks perfect, like a, a beautiful appetizing beer right now. So I'm going to give this, I don't think it, I could picture a better beer in my mind, so I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10. I, I no like it a lot. I see this uh, cloudy golden color here. I, I like it because it's not really uh, fully filtered, so it has this, uh, this wildness in it. I give it a 9 as well. And now we're going to go do the smell. This is out of 20. Last week, I got my nose a little wet. Don't be afraid to get your nose wet. <laughs> All right, big smell. Here we go. Mm, I'm liking that. That smells fresh. It smells like... Very hoppy. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Yeah, I almost... I don't know why I smell a, a tiny bit of like a citrus. It's interesting. Maybe it, it will taste like it. Maybe it, it won't. It could be the hops. It could be the hops. Yeah. But when I when I brew beer, um, I used to use the Galaxy hops, which have a citrus flavor in it. Hmm. That That's could be maybe why, why I like this beer as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, it, it smells great. I smell a little bit of hops, but I don't. It's not like an overpowering hops. It's just you know, here's some hops. Here's a little bit of freshness. Mm -hmm. Here's some little a hint of citrus. I think it smells great. It's, just, it's like an IPA is supposed to smell, I feel like. So I'm, I'm going to go, I'll go 18. I really like the smell of this beer. It smells very appetizing. It's not overpowering. It doesn't smell too uh, hoppy, but you definitely smell the hops. And I, I too, Rich, I'm getting like a little bit of that fruitiness. It almost smells like passion fruit or like mango or something. It smells a little bit fruitier, but definitely hoppy. So I really mm. like IPAs. Uh, I'll give this a 18 out of 20 as well. Yeah, same, same for me. I, I really love the, the fruity hoppiness here. You smell nature. If you ever had hops in your hands, it's, it's actually you smell the, the ingredients out of this beer again, Yeah, which some beers cannot do that. And that's why I also go for 18. Now and moving on to our favorite part. The best this part. Is the, and this is out of 30. Cheers, Hello. gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That is a smooth IPA. Oh, I like that. That's very smooth. Mm -hmm. Refreshing. Yes. Hmm. So out of 30, I don't know what it, maybe is it the modern British style IPA? I don't know. But that IPA definitely, it didn't have a large bite or a kick. Like it was there. Like yeah. you could taste the hops. It was there, but it really wasn't that bold where it was like, oh, that was like super bitter or like a pushback. So that, that was great. Um, it just felt clean. It wasn't like super carbonated running down my throat or anything like that. Just nice and clean, refreshing. I'm trying to see if I could taste like the citrus. I don't think it was super, super citrusy, but I felt a little bit, of, I felt a sun ray. I felt like a sun was peeking out of a cloud and it threw some rays at me. And I was like, ah, nice warm, warm feeling of this. So it, it was great, especially for being an IPA. So I am going to go 
Wow, I'm gonna go with the 26, 26. It, it was pretty good. Ooh, nice, good rating. I really like the taste of this. It's not, for an IPA, it's not overpowering at all. It's very, very smooth. When you take the first sip, you can tell that there's a beer in your mouth. You get a little bit of that carbonation. It goes down smooth. I like the way the smell kind of like tricks you into thinking it's gonna be like more fruity, but the beer itself is very smooth. Doesn't taste too fruity. You definitely get the hops. I really like the taste of this. I'm gonna give it a 24 out of 30. For me, I'm well, not the first time I'm drinking it. I, I really, really <laughs> love it. That's maybe why I proposed it. And uh, even though before I said it almost doesn't have bubbles, now I, I feel it. The, the yeah. whole flavor develops in my mouth. I love the fruitiness. I go with 28 out of 30. And the aftertaste. So the aftertaste for me, and this is out of 25, I think it was delightful. It wasn't like there was anything that was sort of lingering in there that was that bitter or stale or any type of taste like that. It was pleasant. It was fine. I felt like it was subtle, very subtle, and then it faded off, but it never left. So there were some beers that we had where the aftertaste would it'd fade off and it'd be gone. I'm like, oh, that was, that was quick. This sort of just sticks around for a little bit, but just at like a softer level. It was okay. It wasn't bad. So I'm going to go the aftertaste. I'm going to go with the 20. I agree that it's definitely a lingering aftertaste. You still taste a little bit of that beer after you swallow it, like in your mouth and everything. My fiance loves when I when I give her a big smooch after drinking a beer. She likes that. And she would, <laughs> she would love this beer because I feel like she'd get a little bit of that flavor. Um, I think the aftertaste is phenomenal. You, it doesn't, no bad taste, nothing like that. You get, you really get like a little after hint of the beer. I'm going to give it a 24 out of 25. I, I still smell the, the hops and the fruits now in my mouth. <laughs> and uh, I also go with 24. All right, so the overall ranking. So for me, out of 100, I'm giving it a, a solid 87. I thought this was a great IPA, 87. It's pushing 90. I think it's right where it needs to be. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed this beer. I love IPAs. I'm gonna, I, I gave it an 85 out of 100. Wow, so I ended up with 92. That's maybe why I chose it. <laughs> yeah, you, you like this beer a lot. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a great beer personally. I loved it. Well, that wraps up episode number 16. And if you enjoyed listening, we ask that you give it a thumbs up, subscribe, or follow. And oh yeah, please share this episode with friends and family if you found it beneficial. Also, don't forget to leave a review and comment on what topics you want us to cover for the upcoming weeks. That does it. See ya.